Hey everyone and welcome to De Facto. This is the podcast, oh my god, I forgot how to speak. This is a podcast from the perspective of two students who are currently trying to survive the IB. I'm Amelia. And I'm Drui. And today, instead of worrying about our predicted grades now that IB has officially been cancelled in the UK, we are going to be talking about vaccines. So, why are we talking about all of this, like, barring the we don't want to think about the IV part? So, like, why isn't there just one size fits all for vaccines or even immunity? Like, if you get immunity, you know, isn't there, like, this kind of immunity that just says that we are immune against all diseases? Well, what happens is we have specific immune responses. So from when you're born, B cells are in your body, and these are the things that produce antibodies that fight the different viruses. So each one is actually shaped for a different virus. It's like a lock and key. So imagine how much energy you would need for all of your B cells to be active at the same time. It's like a huge amount of energy, and it doesn't make sense for the body to be spending all the energy constantly, right? So you have locks and keys, except the keys are also under lock or sleeping if you prefer. So, you know, kind of think of the B cells as being dormant until they are awakened by specific viruses. So locks and keys that are sleeping that you need to wake up. Ordinarily, you would do this when meeting a virus. But in some cases, it's better, in all cases, it's better if we've actually met this virus before. Like, kind of think about it if you're meeting a new person. The first time you meet them, you'll probably be really awkward, you wouldn't really know what to say. The more times you meet them, the more natural your responses get, and probably also the faster you can communicate with them. It's the same thing to do with viruses and vaccines, because and your body, because the more you know this virus, even if you know it's just from a vaccine, your body learns how to recognize them and therefore it gets better at communicating with, or in this case, destroying the virus. And that's why you need vaccines. Yeah, so let's start with a little story time, bringing back the old story times. Um, and this time with a disease that um, I think we've all heard about in some shape or form. So this is smallpox. And smallpox actually first appeared around 10,000 BC in Africa, and it slowly spread across the globe. So it's been around for a long time. It was first introduced in Europe between the 5th and 7th centuries, and was frequently epidemic during the Middle Ages. By the 18th century, 400,000 deaths a year in Europe alone um, were caused by smallpox, And in some cases, it had astonishingly high fatality rates, in particular in infants. For example, in London, it reached 80% and in Berlin, it reached 98% by the late 19th century. So for thousands of years, humans have battled smallpox and desperately tried to find a cure. So it became common knowledge that once you get um, smallpox once, you don't get it again. You become immune to it. And this is what gave rise to the first sort of treatment for smallpox, which was inoculation. And, or this is also known as variolation. And this involves taking a sample from somebody actually infected with smallpox. Uh, So taking a sample of pus and actually um, injecting it into a healthy person in order to kind of um, give them immunity. And this practice was first brought to the UK in the 1700s by Lady Montague after she saw it on a trip to the Ottoman Empire. She ordered her children back home to be inoculated um, as she'd already seen the devastation of smallpox in her own family. 
So this was when it became introduced in the 1700s and it was soon, it had soon become common practice among the rich. However, it was, um, it was kept for the rich only. It had around a 2% fatality rate and the person who was inoculated was still contagious. And so after they had the um, inoculation, they had to be able to afford to take time off work to undergo quarantine and constant care. So this is where our friend Jenna comes along. So I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with the story. Edward Jenner was fascinated by the fact that milkmaids who caught cowpox from cows became immune to smallpox. Now cowpox is similar to smallpox, although it's a lot less deadly for um, humans. And so it, it was a lot safer for uh, people to get cowpox than it was smallpox. So what Edward Jenner did was he took a sample of cowpox and he inoculated an eight-year-old boy named James Phillips and this boy became immune. Now it's important to note that Jenner was not the first person to carry out this procedure but he was the first person to publish it and to have it publicly known that this worked and although nowadays there are many ethical implications with you know um, injecting a disease into an eight-year-old boy just kind of experimentally it did lead to the eradication of smallpox in 1980 and it remained the only human disease to be declared eradicated so whilst Jenner's um, kind of, whilst Jenner's vaccination and actually it was Jenner who came up with the name for vaccine from the Latin vaccinus meaning from a cow so it was Jenner's vaccination that has kind of started the process of vaccinations that we know today. But since then, vaccinations have come a long way. And we're going to talk today about the different types of vaccinations that we use today. I always think Latin is so interesting. And I feel like one of my big regrets is I never thought to learn Latin. I mean, I never had the opportunity, but learning Latin would have been so interesting. And I never knew that vaccines actually came from the word for from cow i feel like that's actually really cool but i think it's a really cool idea that um amelia started with talking about how you know the difference between smallpox and cowpox is that smallpox is similar to cowpox but cowpox is a less severe version of the disease and therefore although it can also preserve immunity it makes sure that people aren't as harmed while doing it and that's really similar to the first kind of virus vaccine virus sorry vaccine that we're going to talk about which is the life weakened version of a vaccine so when i say live i feel like everyone will panic but it's not actually live life as in you know in jenner's case it's actually a vaccine well, it's actually the virus that's grown in a lab. Sorry, I'm being really confusing today. It's the virus that's grown in a lab. And it's modified version of the virus that we see in the wild. So, you know, you know how tame pets, you know, are usually more tame and wild ones are usually more fierce. It's the same thing for viruses. When you get them in the lab, you can control them and you can kind of engineer them to behave as you want to. So they actually don't have much harm to humans. So when they are introduced into individuals, they'll grow as normal, but because they're weak, they cause no or milder diseases. So the body treats them as normal and fights them just without all of the side effects. And you can see how powerful this is because it's equivalent to kind of waking up these B cells in your body and therefore preparing them to fight against the actual virus when it comes. So 
how the actual vaccine works is that in the vaccine, you know, in the thing that gets injected into you, there's a small quantity of the virus. And when it enters your body, it kind of replicates. So that's how viruses usually get into your body and kind of take over the body. They enter your cells and then they kind of hijack the cell and force the cell to produce more of themselves. That's kind of how viruses work. So the um, how the vaccine works is that it replicates this process just with a you know weaker virus weaker virus so it stimulates the immune response so the benefit of live weakened viruses is that they really produce strong and long-lasting immune responses because they're pretty much like the real thing just weaker but there are quite a few limitations associated with them as well so one example is that these viruses have to be kept cool otherwise you know they won't work as well and that means that you have to store them in fridges but it's very very hard to transport fridges and it's even harder to get to rural parts of the country or even the world for example so that kind of is associated with the problem of storage versus supply because vaccines are usually produced in bigger countries like for example the really heavy research in um, intensive countries like the uk or the us you know that's where the coronavirus vaccines for example are mostly produced but for the other countries like malaysia for example we have to rely on these bigger countries being able to get this supply to us and being able to actually store this virus and vaccine is a really hard thing to do so i think that's one of the severe drawbacks to do with life or weakened viruses. Another really important thing is that this relies on your immune system actually being able to produce a response. But if your immune system is weak, you might not be able to handle this. So for example, it brings up a really interesting point with regard to vaccines, because the older you are, the more likely your immune system is to be weakened, right? So you might not be able to fight the virus as well, but it is the older people, you know, who don't have these strong immune systems who need vaccines the most desperately. Also another case is HIV, because the thing about HIV is HIV is a virus and I'm sure a lot of people have heard of the syndrome that it produces called Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome, so AIDS as it's better known. But if you break apart the acronym and you look at how it's called Acquired Immune Deficiency, well it literally means that you have now the ability to not be immune to things and that's the same thing here so you really won't be able to be able to mount immune response against the virus and that therefore means that vaccines actually don't work as well for you in the live or weaker form so for this specific kind of vaccine it may not be as good for you and one last thing is that this vaccine could theoretically like it's purely theory convert into its pathogenic form you know because we've bred it to be alive and we can like kind of imagine your pet going rogue and like biting you so it's the same kind of thing you know this virus could theoretically go rogue and come back to attack you instead in its stronger form but this has actually only ever been observed once with polio the polio vaccine that's taken already so Actually, considering how many vaccines that we take nowadays, mm, it's really unlikely that this would happen. It's just one case that has happened before. So it's more of a theory than an actual practical thing. Yeah, so that's the active um, vaccine. And now I'm going to talk about pretty much the opposite of that and how it kind of addresses some of the limitations presented by the active vaccine. So this is the inactive vaccine. Um, so... In this vaccine, the pathogen has been killed either by using heat, chemicals or radiation. However, the surface and uh, antigens that elicit the immune response remain intact. So the body is still be able to produce an immune response and create memory cells. 
So this method of vaccination was discovered at the end of the 19th century. And at this time, variolation or inoculation was still being practiced. Um, and for example, it was still being practiced with smallpox. However, it was found that this practice was much more dangerous against diseases such as typhoid, the plague and cholera than it was against um, smallpox. And so from this, um, scientists discovered that actually they didn't need the pathogen to be alive to create this immune response. And the result of this was the discovery of the first cholera vaccine in 1896. So the way that an inactive vaccine works is it induces what we call a humoral response. Now, when we talk about vaccines, there are kind of two main mechanisms of immunity. Um, and one of them is the humoral response, which um, is kind of med mediated by the B cells that you talked about. And uh, the other one is a cellular response, which is mediated by T cells. So this, the inactive vaccine, um, induces a antibody mediated response. Uh, where B cells differentiate into plasma B cells that then can then produce antibodies specific to the specific antigen of the pathogen. Um, so some examples of uh, inactive vaccines that we use today are the vaccine for rabies, hepatitis A and the inactivated uh, poliovirus vaccine. And the strengths of this are that it cannot actually cause the disease. So if you are in that kind of higher risk group, for example, if you're um, uh, for patients who are older and also in infancy, when your immune system is not as strong, it doesn't matter so much because, um, because the pathogen is dead, it's not capable of reproducing and causing the disease. It can also be easily stored and shipped unlike the active vaccine because it's because it's not alive so it makes storage and shipping much easier however it uh, does not produce such a good long-term um, response and so uh, many inactive vaccines require several kind of top-up doses um, once they've been administered I just realized that I feel like the way that we structured this is actually pretty cool because you know how Amelia started off with, you know, showing how these, this is how vaccines were first produced. And I talked about how we developed that and then used that to kind of discover this kind of live weakened form. And then Amelia brought us to talking about how you don't actually need the virus to be alive. You can just take a week or dead even version of the virus and that will still produce the same immune response and that that's even actually better for people who might not be able to take the life weakened virus. So continuing on with that thread, I thought I would develop it further and talk about vaccines that only use a part of the pathogen. So like I mean I thought about just now, you don't actually need the whole virus, you just need the part because the objective of the vaccine is to be able to produce an immune response, right? So you actually you don't need the whole virus, you just need the part that directly produces the immune response, which is usually the specific proteins on the surface of the virus. So this is commonly used for influenza.
But another example is hepatitis B. And how this works is that the DNA, well actually, I'm not sure if it's a DNA or RNA, but let's just go with that. The genetic material of the virus of hepatitis B is taken and put into yeast cells. And then yeast cells then make this protein. So obviously this is a very harmless process because yeast cells are not viruses and they therefore cannot go into human cells and attack them in the same, in the same way a virus would. So after yeast cells have made the protein, the protein is put into humans and boom, you get an immune response. The reason this works so well is because, okay, let's take a step back and think about the structure of a virus. So imagine, okay, this was a really random example, but imagine a ball and a cloth wrapped around the outside of the ball and then needles stuck into the ball, okay? So the ball is the inside of the virus, the cloth is the membrane of the virus, and the needles represent the proteins on the surface of the virus. So now let's talk about influenza. So what happens is that the virus needs to be able to... How the virus works is that its proteins have functions. And usually these functions have to do with actually helping it get into the cell so that the virus can attack the cell and then make more of itself because that's what the virus is living for. Well, that's, that's what the virus, not living, living metaphorically for. That's what the virus objective is. It wants to get into host cells and make more of itself. So how it does this is usually by using proteins. But then we always develop vaccines and other um, things that help us get rid of viruses. So what the virus does to get rid of this is that the virus changes its needles, as in it changes its proteins. Because if you think about it, if you have this thing that I described just now with a ball and a cloth and needles, imagine how much effort it would take for you to take off all the needles and then change the cloth and then put, the put another piece of cloth back on. And it would take even more effort for you to change the ball itself, right? So what makes sense for the virus and for this ball is just changing a few of the needles. And that's exactly what the virus does. So you might be thinking, what if we could attack the ball or the cloth? And we will talk about that later. But the benefit of having viruses that you have only the parts for is that they cannot itself, as Amelia talks about for inactive viruses just now, it's the same thing here. They can't themselves cause the disease, but they can stimulate an immune response. So they can basically get the objectives that we want without producing negative side effects. However, if you think back to the ball analogy, it's still obviously better to replicate the whole ball because there might be something that you miss. Like let's say for example, you want to make a sculpture of someone's face. Of course you can just do it by me telling you, look, their eyes are at 90 degrees or, okay, that's really weird, but they're at like 45 degrees to their nose on the left and 45 degrees to their nose on the right. And it's about like 25 centimeters. Okay, that's such a bad example. It's like, I don't know how many centimeters away. But anyway, it's obviously all fine and good for you to draw it based on me describing it to you. But wouldn't it be so much better, like a much better sculpture if I had just handed you a picture of the person or even the person themselves? So it's the same idea here, you know, while we can of course use just parts of the virus, ultimately we might not be able to replicate the whole thing. And it's still better to replicate the whole thing to make sure we have a complete immune response. So you can imagine how these kinds of viruses produce effects that are not long lasting, and they usually require several doses and subsequent doses in the following years, same as for the inactive virus that Amelia talks about just now. Actually, one benefit is that adjuvants can be added to make them more long-lasting. And I think Amina is going to be talking more about this later, so I'll just introduce it briefly first. So what happens with adjuvants is basically they, they're just substances added to these viruses and vaccines to make the effects last longer. 
but they can produce side reactions, for example, a sore arm. And I was actually really surprised when I discovered this because one of the well-known vaccines that uses only part of the virus is HPV. And the HPV virus really, really hurt. The HPV vaccine really, really hurt. I remember like afterwards, I kept thinking that someone had like punched me in the arm for the whole day. That's how badly it hurt. Or maybe I'm just weak. I don't know. But it really hurt. And I feel like that makes sense now that you consider this because there was an adjuvant in the HPV vaccine and that produced a side reaction as in the sore arm. Yeah, that's really... Well, not cool because it hurt, but it's quite a cool concept. Um, and I'm going to be talking now about another type of kind of almost a subcategory of the part vaccines um, where you don't take the whole pathogen, but you only take a part of it. And these are toxoid vaccines. Now, the word toxoid, um, well, the word oid kind of means like. So if you think of opioid, they're like opiates, humanoid, like humans. So toxoid means like a toxin. So it's like the toxin that certain bacteria produce, but it's not actually that toxin. So in three simple steps, creating a toxoid uh, vaccine looks like, firstly, we get the bacteria. Secondly, we get the toxin. And then we denature and modify the toxin, leaving the binding sites intact. So for some pathogens, it's actually the toxins released by the pathogen rather than the pathogen itself that causes disease. And therefore, it's the toxin that we need protection against. So our body responds to these toxins in the same way as it responds to antigens, um, producing specific antibodies uh, to attack it. When we modify this toxin, scientists can create something that looks like the actual toxin, but it's not actually poisonous, so it's not capable of eliciting so it's capable of eliciting a strong immune response, but it can't actually make you ill. So some examples of um, toxoid vaccines that are commonly used are the diphtheria vaccine and the tetanus vaccine. So, for example, the tetanus immunisation programme is now standard practice in the UK and uh, children have five doses. Um, the first three are at 8, 12 and 16 weeks old and then you get your fourth dose um, at around three years and four months and then you get your final booster between the ages of 13 and 18. And this uh, tetanus vaccine contains a cell-free purified toxin of Clostridium tetani, which is the toxin that causes tetanus. Um, and it's adsorbed with an aluminium salt, which acts as an adjuvant, as GE mentioned earlier. So what actually are these adjuvants? Well, as GE mentioned, they essentially enhance immunity to vaccines. So they can affect both the innate and adaptive immune responses. Sorry, not immunity to vaccines, immunity to diseases. Um, they affect both the innate and adaptive immune responses. Um, and in a way, it kind of helps the innate immune response to guide the adaptive immune response to, uh, to produce the right um, B cells and T cells. So, it allows for lower amounts of the actual antigen to be used and it produces a longer lasting effect overall. So adjuvants are commonly used um, when we use 
parts of pathogens, but not the whole thing, as it um, enhances the immune response. So the limitation of this toxoid vaccine, as we saw with tetanus, is that it often requires several doses. So the tetanus one requires five doses, um, and boosters are required in a lot of in a lot of toxoid vaccinations. However, because it's not the whole um, because it's not the whole pathogen, and because there's nothing there that's able to reproduce, it's not able to cause disease. And furthermore, reactions, negative reactions to the vaccine are very, very rare. So overall, it's uh, it's a very um, useful vaccine. And um, yeah, so that's kind of an overview of the toxoid vaccine. I feel like up until this point, we've been talking about the viruses that I feel like have been the most common up until the coronavirus pandemic. But I also wanted to point out that a really interesting thing is that how you can kind of notice how we've divided it into two broad groups. So one is the life-weakened version of the virus, which basically gives you the whole virus, but is quite risky because it might cause a full immune response. And it also means that people with weaker immune systems can't take it. And then you have alternative options, you know, the inactive virus, the part of the virus, and then the toxoids, which are the bad things produced by the virus or bacteria. And those are the things that, you know, have the opposite strengths and limitations. So they are not capable of causing disease themselves, but they're also not as long lasting as if you give the life weakened version of the virus. So I think it's really interesting to cause to, to think about the risks and benefits associated with both. Because I feel like life weakened viruses are mostly high risk and high reward, whereas the others might be more specific. But I guess I, I think it's a lot more complex than that. But taking like a different path, I thought we would take the opportunity to talk about universal vaccines. And if you remember my ball analogy that was very, very forced from just now, this is where the changing the ball or changing the cloth of the ball comes into play. So a search on Google will tell you about universal COVID vaccines, because I guess that's what everyone's caring a lot about right now. And I think that's especially important because as mentioned before, if we can get to the interior of the virus, that's what helped destroy it regardless of the needles on the outside. And as I mentioned, the needles are what changes. So if we can get to the part that doesn't change, then you can imagine how we would be able to destroy a huge amount of viruses. Considering all the strains of COVID that are now emerging, like all the different strains in different countries, this would be especially helpful because it means that we don't need to just make one vaccine a different vaccine for all viruses. We can just make one vaccine and it will solve all our COVID-related virus problems. But I'm going to talk about the flu vaccine instead, not because everyone's sick of hearing about COVID, but because the flu is something that's still around every year. And I feel like, you know, isn't it really annoying? The winter cold, we eliminated smallpox. Why can't we eliminate influenza? I mean, we should know so much about it. So... See, my very, very forced, like, this is probably going to be, like, my favorite thing in the episode to mention, my ball analogy. But what has happened is that influenza has got particularly adept at changing its outsides. So every year, you need a flu jab to work against the needle, right? And every year, it changes. So it's a cycle. So this winter, the flu appears, and scientists work around the clock to make a vaccine. So you get rid of the flu this season, but then the flu comes back next season, and etc. In more scientific terms, viruses work by getting inside cells and forcing them to make more of themselves, right? 
But this system of copying themselves, like which is known as RNA, is actually really bad. So sometimes there are mistakes called mutations. And sometimes these just kill the virus. Other times they create new strains and that's what's deadly. So flu viruses actually have two proteins on their surface. Does H1N1 sound familiar? H1N1 actually stands for stands oh my gosh stands for different things. So the H stands for hemagglutinin and the N stands for neuraminidase. So actually there are eight different H's and eleven different N's. So flu ca flus can be characterized. For example, H1N1 is hemagglutinin one neuram neuraminidase one. And I'm going to focus particularly on the H. So actually the H is made out of a head and a stem and it's a protein that helps viruses get into the cell. So flu vaccines target the head, which is the thing that varies each season. But in a similar way to my ball analogy just now, scientists actually realized that the stem stays unchanged. So if we could target the stem instead, you can see how it would be really helpful in possibly eradicating flu. The benefits of this is that it could potentially prevent a future pandemic, which sounds like it would be very, very helpful. And additionally, it's really important because there would be no need to make a new flu vaccine each year, which not only saves costs, scientists will actually, you know, not have to lose jobs because there's so much more to them, for them to do. For example, they could do research on other types of viruses and there are antibiotic resistant bacteria now. There's a lot to do in the world of immunity and, you know, a lot more viruses. Yeah, that's really cool. The thought that actually we could have something that's kind of more universal and just kind of works and definitely having a solution to the flu would be very nice particularly with what we're going through at the moment so the final type of vaccine that i'm going to talk about is quite a topical one and i'm sure you've all heard of it it's the mrna vaccine so this one has gained a lot of attention over the last year and pfizer slash biontech currently use it in their coronavirus vaccine and what this does it's it's pretty clever it takes the pathogen's genetic code um and introduces the rna sequence into the body containing the instructions so that our body can make the back the antigens itself and generate an immune response so when the cell makes the antigen, it then presents this to our immune system and hence we get the immune response. So the enormous benefit of this one is its speed. Once you have the um, genetic code, it can take less than a week to develop your first experimental batch. Um, and this is because if we think of... Um, the genetic code it's kind of like a long sentence of bases um, and it's just a linear sentence um, and once we establish this um, sequence of letters then that's kind of it that's the sequence unlike a protein where you've got to figure out how it's folded um, and kind of like how it interacts and a lot more about the structure of it um, your genetic sequence is very linear and you don't even need a sample of the virus itself. You just need this genetic code. And furthermore, it doesn't require adjuvants. So in terms of producing it, it's very um, 
it's, it's ideal as a vaccine because it can produ- be produced so quickly, which is exactly what we needed in the case of coronavirus. However, there are limitations and this is why it's taken so long for the mRNA vaccine to become a reality. So the idea of having an mRNA vaccine and having our cells produce the antigens needed has been around for some decades now. Um, and along the way, scientists um, discovered more and more kind of um, hurdles that they had to overcome in order to make this kind of revolutionary vaccine work. So first of all, it's difficult to keep the RNA intact. So free-floating RNA in our bodies is often used by tumour cells to help them spread, or it can be a sign of remnants from disease, um, and therefore our body has a lot of these things called ribonucleases, which are enzymes that break down um, that break down RNA to stop the spread of tumour cells uh, or to kind of get rid of those last bits of disease. So as a safety um, and protective mechanism, our body has these ribonucleases that immediately want to break down free uh, RNA. So to overcome this, scientists work to make the RNA more like human RNA. So to do this, they added a cap onto the beginning and a poly-A tail onto the end, which is kind of a way of modifying um, the... Uh, modifying the kind of sentence, as it were, so that it would be less likely to be attacked by our body. It can also activate the immune system. So the message is actually destroyed before it can do anything. So having got the message into the body, um, the immune response recognises that actually this isn't quite normal, and so it attacks it. So yes, it creates an immune response, but it creates an immune response to the wrong thing, to the mRNA instead of to the antigen that we wanted to. Um, and to help solve this problem, scientists notice differences in the modification of bases and the letters and the mRNA sequence. And they noticed that these bases were more modified in mammals than in pathogens. So using this information, they were able to modify and um, kind of alter the mRNA sequence to manage the immune attack and make it less likely for our body to attack the mRNA before it has a chance to get inside our cells and reproduce. Another problem that was encountered was that the molecule is too big on its own to get through our cell membrane. And how they got over this one was they used this thing called lipid nanoparticles or LNPs. And LMPs are kind of surrounded by a lipid layer, which can then, um, which are then attracted to our cell membrane and can be brought in by endocytosis. And this way, the mRNA is inside the, these little nanoparticles, and this is how the um, mRNA actually gets inside our cells so that it can create the antigens. So... I mean, mRNA mRNA vaccines are so cool and they're quite complicated, but they are well worth looking into and kind of doing a bit of extra research about because they're such a um, kind of the fact that we've managed in the last year to actually get a working functional um, mRNA vaccine, I think could be really revolutionary for the future of vaccinations. 
and it's definitely a very exciting field of research that has just been opened up. I feel like it's also really incredible that people always say that, you know, look at all the other vaccines, they take 20 years to produce, it takes 10 years to produce. Like, when was the last time we had a vaccine that takes one year to produce? And it's all down to the fact that we have this new vaccine. So I feel like a lot of people's concerns about these vaccines are definitely valid. I feel like there are definitely a lot of weight to them. But I also feel like just in terms of pure science, it's so interesting how much we've been able to discover in the past year. We've literally, like as Amelia said, I was just like, wow. Like we have discovered how to, not only how to make this vaccine, but also how to make sure that the body doesn't recognize it as foreign and destroy it before it can actually do what it's meant to do. And we've all learned all of this in like a really short time, which I think is pretty incredible. So we thought we would also take this opportunity to, especially since there's a lot of news about coronavirus vaccines and they're getting rolled out all around the world, we thought we would take the opportunity to talk about some myths. So when I was doing research for interviews, I looked at vaccinations and anti-vaxxers has always been something that I've never understood. Just because I, I'm pro-vax, obviously, but um, I think it's also important to understand what you're dealing with before you can kind of convince people who don't believe in it otherwise. So I kind of looked up what the anti-vaxxers believe. And what I'm going to do here is bring out a few of these views and then kind of share my own input in them and kind of... Yeah, just share, share a few opinions. So let's talk COVID first. I think the biggest concern with COVID vaccines is that people think that the government is moving too fast and bypassing security regulations. And I obviously agree. I mean, as I said just now, when have we ever produced a vaccine in one year and then tried to roll it out to the whole world? That's kind of crazy to think about, right? And another reason uh, that people kind of are wary of the COVID vaccine is the distrust of the government. For example, a certain official who promoted hydroxychloroquine but then showed it to be ineffective. Now, I have nothing to say about the second, and um, thank goodness it's past January the 20th, but I think health concerns surpass that. And if it was really a conspiracy theory that you know the government is trying to harm its citizens, I'm not sure what the government has to gain from doing that, but I want to talk more about the first one. So I think it's definitely valid that people think that the government and scientists are moving too fast and bypassing security regulations. Like All of the um, government regulations have been speeding up the process for the vaccine because of its importance. I mean, we've never been in this kind of situation before. I don't remember a global lockdown, especially of this scale, and neither do my parents. Our IV life has literally been like, I've spent like more time at home than I have in school. And my parents were like, why are we even paying your school fees? You just live here. So, you know, there's never been something like this before. But it's because this is a special situation that we need the vaccine even more. Because without the vaccine, we will have to continue as we are, right? Like, I'm not sure when you intend for things to go back to normal if you don't have a vaccine. What is your way out of this situation if you don't have a vaccine? Because the virus isn't just going to go away. And as we have seen over the past few weeks and the past few months, the virus is very strong. It's just going to mutate and come back stronger than ever. So we can't just use medicine to get over it. So what exactly do you plan to be as your exit strategy? So the way I see it, there are really only two options here where we keep on as we have, or we choose to take a risk. And the risk is risky, but it's also associated with a reward. And personally, I feel like 
you know, it's been a long time since we've been able to actually interact with people. If there is something that has been shown so far to have no significant negative effects, I mean, that's why there are so many vaccines, but only two candidates that are actually on the market. And that's why, you know, people have actually been rolling out this vaccine. So which one would you choose? So for vaccines in general, about the myths about them, I thought I would just take the opportunity to also talk about a few of them. So one is that diseases disappear due to better hygiene and sanitation. And for this one, I'm just going to point out that correlation is a causation. The second one is that people who get vaccinated still get sick. And yeah, it's true. I mean, also, you know, you get side effects from vaccines. As I mentioned just now, my arm felt like it was being punched for days after HPV vaccine. But note how people who get vaccinated get sick more mildly or fewer times than without a vaccine. And really, very, very few people get sick after vaccines. Because I remember that a group of us took the HPV vaccine together. It was kind of a school thing where all of us lined up, took our vaccines one by one, and then, you know, came out after it. And out of like 20 of us, only one of us felt slightly sick after it. Like she came down with a slight fever. But after that, she was fine. And there were no long-lasting effects from that. And to this day, she's still healthy. So... You know, while it's true that people still get sick, you still get sick to a much less degree. And for most people, you don't get sick at all. So actually, the, ri- the risk here is much less than the reward. The third one is autism, which always makes me really upset. So because, the, first of all, this is just proven wrong, right? Like, please, please stop spreading that vaccines cause autism because they really, really do not. So many scientists have come out to say it's fake accompanied by papers and papers of research. It's, you know, like nowadays, it's fake news. It's meant to shock people. There's no actual value behind it. So yeah, autism does not cause, and your vaccines do not cause autism. The fourth one is the trust of pharmaceutical companies. And this is also valid, but I would also just like to point out that they don't really also have a reason to harm you. Like, yeah, they can get money from harming you by going back to the company again and again, but they can also gain a lot of money from bringing out a successful product because a good name will travel a very long way and more and more people will come to buy their product. And the last myth is that they've been virtually eliminated in my country, so why should I go and vaccinate? I mean, there's no point, right? First of all, barring the coronavirus, there was always global travel, so travelers can still bring in the virus. And there's always a risk. Like, you know, if it's virtually been eliminated in your country, that still means that someone still has the potential to spread it. What if, you know, this just happens to be an epidemic? What if we have the coronavirus again, you know, just one person spreading it to a huge number of people? That can still happen. And another really important thing is herd immunity. So I feel like a lot of things that I've talked about here, like a lot of myths, are associated with protecting yourself and your family and your loved ones, especially young children and older people, and I think that's really important. But I would also like to point out that another way that you can protect these people is actually by getting a vaccination. Because there are some people who physically cannot be vaccinated. Older people, younger, like really young people, like babies with weak immune systems. People with HIV, for example. Like, the thing about AIDS, which is caused by HIV, is that you start seeing people who will get diseases that our body can normally fight off. Like, every day your body's waging a war against all the bacteria and viruses that enter your system. But a reason why we don't get sick sick, as in, you know, we don't get fevers, we don't get colds, we don't actually realize we've been sick, is because our body is so good at getting rid of these before we actually know.
symbiotism. But for some people, this is literally not possible. Like, you know, in the case of HIV. So if you can get vaccinated, it's almost a social responsibility for you to do so because there are people who can't. And if we can just do this bit for society and maybe just suffer a sore arm for 24 hours, I think we should do it. So to conclude, vaccines are now being rolled out everywhere and like I said just now, they just arrived in Malaysia just under a week ago. And most people are starting to get the opportunity to take it. So please, if you can, I think we should really consider taking it so we can go back to being as normal or well as we used to be or at least something close. Yeah, I think that's really helpful and just kind of just to reinforce that, you know, vaccines are not the enemy. And unfortunately, as, as long as vaccines have been around since Jenna first invented them, there have always been people who have been against vaccinations. Although their fears have always been unfounded. And we've seen that with the vaccination, we actually managed to eradicate smallpox, which that's quite impressive to eradicate a disease which killed hundreds of thousands of people every single year. And you know, to get over coronavirus, we need this vaccine for for safety and for no- normality for everybody. So we hope that today's episode kind of showed you a bit more about the different kinds of vaccines and actually how incredible vaccinations are. So thank you so much for listening and we hope to see you again next time. Thank you.